Hello, and welcome to Finding the Glitter in the Gold, a Middle Earth, Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien chat podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm Zoe. And we are, as always, discussing the works of John Ronald Rayle Tolkien, who was writing stories set in Middle Earth from 1937 when he was 45 up until his death in 1973. And we're not even going to worry about narrative consistency this time around because that's not our responsibility. That is uh, hundreds of other people's responsibility because we're talking about the translations of Tolkien's works. And specifically today, we're going to be talking about translations of The Hobbit. And I've seen a few in the wild, actually, that have been pretty cool. When I was in Dublin in 2013, um, I saw a translation of The Hobbit for sale in Irish. And it turns out that it had been translated just the year before, uh, in 2012. So uh, on Holbad was how they had translated the title for that one. Um, and it was really cool. I almost bought it. I, I speak very little Irish and read none of it because it's very difficult. Um, but I thought it would be really cool to have. But I mean, I, I had a, a pretty language. It's beautiful and I so interesting. To it. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool when I was over there. You could turn to some radio stations and it was all in Irish. Um, and there were certain areas that are called Gael Talks where they only speak Irish and stuff like that. So it was pretty cool. That's awesome. We've talked a bit about how we've talked quite a lot about uh, how J.R. Tolkien considered himself a translator of his works from their original Westron into English. But then once he published all of these works, people took them and ran with them and translated them into a range of other languages. And a person uh, who runs the website Elrond's Library, <laughs> which just outlines translations of Tolkien all over the world, states that as far as this person knows, after more than 20 years of collecting, there are 125 translations of The Hobbit, plus 25 revised translations into 69 languages. Wow, that's a lot of languages. Yeah. If you want to check out the website too, uh, they have examples of all of the different covers, which is pretty cool, cool to look at. So you can see all the different covers for The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings as well. I just like all the names that people give, like, like the translated names are almost never exactly the same. For, yeah. For well, books. Well, I mean, Hobbit is a made up word. So I looked at Technically, the- Technically it comes from the old English and the German, but yes. What does it mean? Word. Hobbitla? When you break it down, it means um, hole dweller. Ah, yes. You've told me this before. Yep. Um, yeah, but if you put that into, like, Chinese, it's just going to be, like, they're just going to call it Hobbit. Um, right. Or something similar. But some examples I found when I looked at the big list on Wikipedia of all the translations. Um, Portuguese, the title is Onomo, was in the gnome. Which is kind of ironic because... Elves were originally called like like it was originally gnomish. Yeah. It was elvish. So it's a little bit ironic that now <laughs> hobbits are being called gnomes when elves were kind of originally called gnomes, mm -hmm. even though they have no relation to the gnomes as we think of nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Other title uh discrepancies I saw. A lot of them are Hobbit or Bilbo or There and Back Again or variations and combinations thereof. But the Finnish one started with Dragon Mountain. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce the, the Finnish word for that, but it was extremely dope. Vigo, tell us how to pronounce it. <laughs> um, 
the, the Bulgarian version is called Bilbo Baggins, so it starts with his full name. And Hungarian is called uh, Ababo, which when I put it into Google Translate out of curiosity, it translated as the bean. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if it's just they consider him small, it's like a small person, or is it some variation of Bilbo and his name is just Ababo now? I don't know. <laughs> I would be curious to see if when you read it, if they call him a babo or just babo or something instead of bilbo yeah yeah I'm, I'm curious to hear about the translation of the names into different languages because i know that there was sometimes a struggle with that mm -hmm. um getting the names of places to sound right like rivendell in english but then how do you evoke that in another language where you're like you know fast moving water and um kind of a tree-y feeling very natural how do you translate that and then it, also the names like Mary and Pippin were according to Tolkien translations of um, Westron names that he chose and we've talked about those um, yeah whatever they were originally meant to mean peregrine and they were yeah they were always really specific mm -hmm. to the, the character yeah it kind of depends get that into a name in a different language it kind of depends on how much research you do ahead of time, I think, as the translator. And I've already done a little bit of peeking into translations of Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, which we are going to talk about next week. But sometimes you get people who were not very careful translators and they forgot what name they used for a character. Oh, <laughs> and so no. you get six different variations on Isildur. <laughs> Wait, but like... You can just go and check your own work. Apparently, should, you, you only go forward. Just keep no. moving forward. No, this is terrible. This <laughs> anyway, is so bad. There's some great drama we'll get to next week, but we're going to talk about The Hobbit for this one, which I'm also very excited to talk about. Um, just to kick us off, the first translation of The Hobbit into a different language uh, was Swedish, and that was done in 1947. And uh, the original title of that one was Hompin, which I assume was their variation of Hobbit. Uh, it was translated again in 1962, and the title then became Bilbo, A Hobbit's Adventure, but, you know, in Swedish. So, so you know you know that song by Destiny's Child, Jumpin' Jumpin'? Mm-hmm, yeah. I just want to go, Hompin' Hompin'. <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> Oh, uh, you hobbits leave your gold at home. <laughs> <laughs> the road is really long and you've got dwarves to follow. Mm -hmm. Perfect. <laughs> and now you better go with Gandalf the wizard because it's 1130 and you have a contract sign. <laughs> humpin', humpin'. We need to release like a little EP of all the songs we've come up, you've come <laughs> up with during the course of this podcast. Um, okay, that'll take some time, but I'll get. It'll take some on that. recording that I have never done before. I've only ever, <laughs> I've only ever edited podcasts. I have some friends in the music business who are releasing EPs. I can ask. Perfect. There you go. Hold so that was Swedish, um, and that was yeah, that was the first one that he picked. Very interesting that Sweden kind of jumped on that, you know. Yeah, and like 1947. That's right after World War II. Yeah. I, yeah, I kind of wonder. They were definitely not neutral. The, the reason we're talking about World War II is because all these translations came out after then. And uh, there was a German translation that had a little bit of drama around it regarding The Hobbit. 
So the German translation, this, if you want to talk about a hullabaloo, this was a little bit of a hullabaloo. So there were um, uh, a German publisher, Rutten and Leuning Verlag, who in 1938 uh, inquired about the possibility of translating The Hobbit, and they asked very blatantly, they asked Tolkien about his ancestry and his Aryanness. And um, we're just going to read this letter, letter 30, um, mm -hmm. that Tolkien responded with because it is priceless and <laughs> the most like scholarly linguistic response that also shuts someone down that I've ever read. He writes, Dear Sirs, thank you for your letter. I regret that I am not clear as to what you intend by Arish. I am not of Aryan extraction, that is, Indo-Iranian. As far as I am aware, none of my ancestors spoke Hindustani, Persian, Gypsy, or any related dialects. But if I am to understand that you are inquiring whether I am of Jewish origin, I can only reply that I regret that I appear to have no ancestors of that gifted people. My great-great-grandfather came to England in the 18th century from Germany. The main part of my descent is therefore purely English, and I am an English subject, which should be sufficient. I have been accustomed, nonetheless, to regard my German name with pride and continue to do so throughout the period of the late regrettable war in which I served in the English army. He's talking about World War I for that one. World War I, yes. Yeah. When he was in the Somme, mm -hmm. fighting for the English against Germans. Yes. I cannot, however, forbear to comment that if, I, if impertinent and irrelevant inquiries of this sort are to become the rule in matters of literature, then the time is not far distant when a German name will no longer be a source of pride. Your inquiry is doubtless made in order to comply with the laws of your own country, but that this should be held to apply to the subjects of another state would be improper, even if it had, as it has not any bearings whatsoever on the merits of my work or its suitability for publication, of which you appear to have satisfied yourselves without reference to my abstamun. I trust you will find this reply satisfactory and remain yours faithfully. J.R.R. Tolkien. Yes, and that letter was written to them in 1938, which is one year before World War II officially started. And the um, German, pub the German translation wasn't until 1957. Yeah, he that, did not permit it to be published in German until 1957. <laughs> he literally told his British pub publisher, Stanley Unwin, uh, that he was considering letting a German translation go hang. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Tolkien was very uh, anti-Nazi. <laughs> very anti-Nazi, and he wrote many, many letters about this. Yes. Um, yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting that he talks about Aryanness and like the actual linguistic origins of the word Aryan and the culture Aryan is Indo-Iranian. Which therefore like is a complete opposite of how we think of it now. And how it's been distorted. To, and yeah. how it's come to mean, like it's lost that linguistic uh, lineage. Yeah, I mean, the Nazis distorted a lot of symbols of other cultures for their stuff that now are, you know, totally fucked. <laughs> Including the swastika. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was a super interesting tidbit about the German translation of The Hobbit. And I love that he had so many letters that just documented it, right? Yeah, it's been so useful to have his own words at a very specific point in time to talk about what his feelings were and, 
you get a very strong sense of his opinions at this time. You also get a sense of how things kind of shift over time as well, if you read them. I'm not going to read all of those letters, but um, the ones that have popped up have been super useful, and I appreciate you <laughs> finding these. <laughs> well, and, and I've just really enjoyed, because I kind of end up just going down the, just scrolling through the letters on mm -hmm. the, you can find them on online. There's a couple websites that just have all of them. And yeah. a lot of them, like, they aren't really in order sometimes like letter 30 and letter 31 are not necessarily to the same person or at all related to the same subject so you kind of just like hop around in time period with is a it lot not of, organized by time it's usually organized by time but not by subject or um recipient oh so, so sorry, it's chronological hop, yeah so it's chronological but it, but you like jump not so you don't jump around through time period you jump around through subject matter and people and it's just fascinating to kind of see how it changes um, over time, and to whom he's speaking, it's it's a really fascinating way to chronicle a person's history yeah. through the words to a bunch of different subjects. That's, that just gets me really excited about archiving practices and that sort of thing, where you're like, you choose how you group things. And in this one, they went chronological, which is probably the most, the easiest to do, but also then you have to start kind of maybe adding tags to these sorts of things or making it a searchable database where you can search for certain terms or names so that you know who he was talking to, what he was communicating about, mm -hmm. um, the kind of conversations he was having with people. I feel like that sometimes with my texts to people, like I can hold three or four different conversations in text, sometimes with the same person in different text threads. <laughs> like I'll be talking with someone in a group chat and then we're also having another conversation with just us off to the side about something totally unrelated. And then and you're like, sending photos and you almost send them to the wrong people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it works out well. <laughs> it was Here. a beautiful photo, right? Got a book. Let me send you this thing about XKCD maps. Uh -huh. <laughs> Among other things. Yes. But yes, this, yes, beautiful. Harvey Guyon. Yes. Beautiful man. Um, do you want to talk about the Russian translation now? Yeah. So um, it's a Belarusian translation. Uh, it was in 1976. So it was still when the Soviet Union was the USSR. Important historical fact. 1976 was the Russian translation by N. Rakamanova. So it's interesting then that the Russian translation and the Belarusian translation were in the same year. Mm -hmm. It kind of makes sense. They're very close together. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of cultural exchange that yes. happens between them. Yes. They both use this Cyrillic yes. alphabet, um, as many countries there do. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up finding a couple um, articles that talked a little bit about how this translation was used as Soviet propaganda. Um, and like this, the two people didn't really read a ton of Russian, so they couldn't say specifically, but from the looks of other translations that they had read um, and the illustrated map that was in the Belarusian translation and the fact that the Russians have a history of changing the plots of novels to coincide mm -hmm. with a communist propaganda scheme. Mm -hmm. um, so this guy was like, Maybe it was Comrade Bilbo. And I was like, <laughs> yes, that's kind of funny. Um, but so it could be also that it was used as a, a form of propaganda by the Russians, by the USSR. Um, but the map itself was super interesting. It was created by Mikhail Belominsky, and it was illustrated, like 
most maps are. It had like little pictographs and everything and little images. Um, and it's kind of a beautiful, beautiful map. Um, but it's very much, it uses the Soviet Union as its basis. Like it's a map of Middle Earth, but based off of Russia? Yes. Mm. Um, so there was a lot of changes that were made to it. So for example, uh, in the bottom left corner, there's a collection of log cabins rendered in black woodcut-like style, or Jobton, or Hobbiton. Uh, there's a branch of an unnamed river, and there aren't any unnamed rivers in Middle-earth because Tolkien was very specific about that. And there are three <laughs> unnamed rivers um, and that separate Hobbiton from Rivendell, and another separates Rivendell from a place called Soledni Domashni Priut, which is the last homely house. But the last homely house was in Rivendell, so it doesn't make sense why these two would be separated unless it was based off of something else. Mm. Um, and then there is Diki Kre, which is means wildland or the wild edge, also doesn't really exist in the map of Middle Earth. There's an image of a wolf and a mountain chain called Tumani Gori, which is the Misty Mountains, which separate the flatlands to the south from another river containing um, Skala Karok or Karok. The rock, and then a weather vane topped wooden house called Dom Bjorna, which is Bjorn's house, which does mm. exist, but it didn't look like it was in the same relation. There's a couple other pine forests, and there's a castle in one of these pine forests called Dvoriet uh, Koroila Elfov, which is the castle of the elf king. So I can only imagine that their black forest is Mirkwood, so that's mm. how they translated it. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> I guess um, they have the back black forest and the river coming out of that. So that would be Mirkwood and the river coming out of Mirkwood, which goes to the town of Dale um, and into the region of uh, Erebor, like we've talked about before, near the Lonely Mountain, which mm-hmm. is legit. They call this the Swift River and the Long Lake, uh, which has the island city of Eskaroth, which is a little bit different terminology. And the image of Eskaroth is black and with turrets and quote looks a little like a middle earth version of the kremlin (laughs) so then there's a other a couple other little different things but it's just like all of these all of these little differences and illustrations and the slight geographical differences that kind of emulate more of a ussr of a russia of this this image like the wild edge sounds a lot like an iron curtain right? Like that didn't mm-hmm. exist in the Middle Earth. Like there is no such thing as a wild edge. And like there might be the, the separation between the wild lands and like more civilized territories, but that wasn't written on any maps made by Tolkien that I could find. Is there, a, is there like the Black Gates of Mordor? There are the Black Gates of Mordor, but the where, like where this is in relation to things doesn't add up. Mordor mm. is not near Rivendell. Oh, Mordor mm-hmm. is in the south. Rivendell okay. is not there, right? Because they went, they went from Rivendell, and then they had to, tra- yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of traipsing. There's the there's middle. a lot of traipsing in between. There's a lot of space. It's not like there's suddenly this wild edge. Yeah. Um. And so I was like, huh, that's really interesting terminology. And then they just make some of the castles that the elf castle of the elf lord look like a fucking Kremlin. Hmm. The the map itself is fascinating to look at and to like kind of look at if you look at it as propaganda or what it could potentially be it's kind of fascinating 
Yeah, it's kind of unfortunate that the people who looked at it through this lens didn't actually speak Russian enough to delve into that sort of thing. Because actually, this translation that you're talking about, the 1976 translation by Rachmanova, was used in the Armenian translation. So the oh. Armenian translation translated from the Russian in 1984. And it also used the same illustrations by Belom Linskij. The, the same map, you mean? It says illustrations here. Uh, mm. I'm not sure if they use the same map. Okay. That, that would be interesting because, I mean, Armenia was part of USSR? No. Oh, Armenia is. The language that it, I was seeing it written in did not look like Cyrillic at all. Well, Armenia, Armenian is not a Cyrillic language. Yeah, that was really interesting to me that it, it was a translation from a Cyrillic, but they don't actually use it. Okay, it's a little south, it's south of Georgia and um, borders Azerbaijan. So it's not really close to, well, Russia's really big, so. <laughs> um, but it's kind of like Georgia and Azerbaijan keep it from touching Russia. It's next to Turkey. Uh, so in 1920, Armenia was incorporated into the Trans-Caucasian Socialist Federative Soviet Republic, and in 1922 became a founding member of the Soviet Union. In 1936, the Transcaucasian state was dissolved, transforming its con constituent states, including the Armenians, Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic, into full Union republics. So it was part of oh. the Soviet Union, and it did not leave the Soviet Union until um, 1991. 1991. Yeah. Um, so I guess that would make sense as to why they would use a Russian translation for an Armenian translation if they're part of the USSR and everything had to go through the Kremlin, through Moscow, which yeah. meant that the translation had to be approved. But anything in, in Russia at that point, and probably now, has to, had to be approved by Moscow. Yeah. You couldn't. I mean, obviously things were smuggled and whatnot, but... Yeah. It's so interesting because from a translation standpoint, I would think that that would be a horrible practice. Like, you should never translate from another translation. You're just getting further from the source material at that point. But if you're going to have to get it proved again, and someone's already done the work of making it pro-Russian propaganda, then you're kind of set if you use that version. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it'd be kind of like when you, like the movies, like I guess the, uh, the bootlegged Ch uh, Chinese version of Lord of the Rings, they translated <laughs> from English into Chinese, but then they did subtitles for the Chinese. And into it was English like, again. yeah, back into English. And Gollum was always talking about his precious was called ice cream. <laughs> so, and that's even just going from one language back to the same language, but the translation was wonky. So imagine going from one language to a completely different language. It's not going to retain kind of any of the original flavor. What are you going to be reading? Like, instead of dwarves, there's suddenly flying frogs. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it'll go that bad, but yeah. It's, it's a very interesting topic and one that I think about a lot when I read translations of other works, um, which I've done a fair amount. I like mm -hmm. reading a lot of different things and it's kind of fun to think about the translators and the choices that they're making with the way that they interpret an author's work for another audience. And if they come from the culture that they're translating from, or if they're from the culture that they're translating it into, I think it affects a lot of how they present the work. But that's all up to personal taste too. It's very much an art translation and I find oh, yeah. it extremely impressive. Oh yeah. 
Um, what I did notice is that in the chart, the way it's laid out, they list who's translated each of these works. And a lot of the translators of the prose of The Hobbit were different than the people who translated the poetry of The Hobbit. So they got a different person to translate poems from uh, The Hobbit. And the same with Lord of the Rings as well, but we're not talking about that yet. Which is super interesting because then you start thinking about with translating poetry, if you want to create a certain mood or connotation to the words, or if you want to capture a rhythm, or if you want to capture a rhyme scheme. I was thinking rhyme scheme too. A lot of Tolkien's work had rhyme scheme in it, Mm -hmm. and it was meant to be song. Yeah, I actually uh, got into a discussion with my friend Kate and my friend Anana about Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. And uh, Kate is a purist and will tolerate no version of Hallelujah but Leonard Cohen's. But I have found some extremely interesting versions of it. I like the song a lot. I will play it, not for her, but I will play it on my ukulele because it's pretty uh, easy to play. (laughs) And a guy translated it into Yiddish and preserved the rhyme scheme. But that totally changed a lot of the... Way, like framing of the phrases because mm-hmm. it rhymes in Yiddish and it no longer rhymes in English and so the subtitles talked more about him capturing the um, mood of the song or the specific mm-hmm. imagery or the stories that Cohen was drawing from as he was creating these songs that's amazing it was an incredible I'll send you the video it was really good please do he's a famous Klezmer musician Hallelujah was um, actually sung by a queer a cappella choir at a tiny little church in Portland when I went to see their show. Oh, that's lovely. It was like the most beautiful, beautiful thing, having mm. that many voices recreate all the instruments. <sighs> yeah, it was, it was beautiful. Yeah, that kind of thing is very important, though, especially if you're translating songs. It's like, do you want to maintain exactly what the person said and directly translate that? Or do you want to make it fit a rhyme scheme in another language? And that is a lot of work and it's really difficult and very impressive. And you want to keep the poetic structure of a sentence because a Mm. lot of sentences are meant to maybe have alliteration or have a feel and a sound or a specific connotation that they summon. Or like um, when you get into Shakespearean and he started fucking around with the order of words, you Mm -hmm. can emphasize a certain part of a sentence first. Like this is when you get into whether passive versus active voice is more important. If you want to put the subject before the object or the object is more important, maybe you want to put that first. This is uh, why translating, I have so much respect for the people who do this kind of work. (laughs) It's it's complicated and complex, so but beautiful. It's a really fun way to play with language. Yeah. And, and you have to have a mastery of it to do it really well. Mm-hmm. I've seen a person who translated their own poetry uh, from Spanish into English and completely, uh, deliberately ruined it. Hmm. Like uh, the poem was about a mermaid who is captured and hurt by a fisherman in Spanish. And then in English, it became about a mermaid who longs for a fisherman and um, hurts when he's not around. And it was uh, fascinating and disturbing knowing a little bit of Spanish and being able to understand what the original was versus how it was translated into English. And it, again, kind of drove home for me the power that a translator has in the word choice and the fact that there are a lot of synonyms for things that have 
strong connotations one way or the other. And so the way that you choose to translate an idea can either frame it in a positive or a negative light. Precisely. It can also be like a major group effort. And um, this this was a really interesting translation that I found. Um, this might be my favorite story that we have discovered so far. About Lord, yeah. <laughs> about Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Yeah. Um, so the first Hebrew translation of the Hobbit was uh, done by a group of Israeli soldiers who were being held captive in Egypt during the War of Attrition, which was fighting between Israel and Egypt, Jordan, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and their allies, which took place between 1967 to 1970. Um, and so this group of four Israeli soldiers uh, finished translating The Hobbit in four months. There were, uh, there were nine of them. There were nine of them? Yeah, there were ten. Oh, yes. It was, it was the captured pilot Rami Harpez with nine other prisoners. Oh. Maybe there was just... So uh, the note I saw on, on the Wikipedia page is that it's attributed to four people. But that may have just been the people who were in charge of translating it because they also had people who were assigned to read it ah, as yeah, well. That probably that would probably be part of it. Yeah. And so this was a group effort. They had been sent the Hobbit, uh, in the English version of the Hobbit by the Red Cross and they didn't have anything else to do really while they were being held. Um, and so there was a group of people who were in charge of translating and a group who read the translation and um, it created a great sense of unity in the group. And it, the translation itself is actually not credited to an individual. It's credited to, it's called the pilot's edition of the Hobbit. Yeah. That came out in the 1970s after another, there was another Hebrew translation that came out like a year beforehand, mm -hmm. but um, this one's, I believe a bit more popular. <laughs> For good reason. It makes me wish that I spoke Hebrew simply so I could read it. Mm-hmm. It'd be really interesting to see. So there was a movement, I feel like in the 2000s, where popular work started to be translated into dead languages that people were studying. Um, I saw this because I was taking Latin and ancient Greek in college, and I took some Latin in high school, and they were working on translating a version of Harry Potter that was published in Latin in 2003. They've only published the first two Harry Potters in Latin, but they would uh, translate chunks of it kind of just to get a good sense of the language and all of that sort of thing. But it wasn't until uh, 2012 that The Hobbit was translated into Latin, and it hasn't been translated into ancient Greek. And that's just really interesting to me that this is a very, this is very much an older work and I feel like has that sort of epic feel that begs to be translated into dead languages but uh they went with harry potter first <laughs> maybe they need to make it into um like the odyssey but the hobbit and use that particular poetic style and mm. stanza format hmm. maybe that's what needs to happen that would be extreme into ancient greek oh god ancient greek the rhythms on that one are are just a mess. Uh, like yeah, but you want to talk about like like a difficult, interesting translation work. Yes. Like that would be cool. I'm not. I don't know. Action drink. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. No, not touching that. But as like a like an idea, a concept. Yeah, get Ann Carson on that. She's yeah. translated enough stuff from Greek into English. Maybe she can shove it back the other direction at this point. I would trust her with it. Her poetry is beautiful. Um, the Latin title for Hobbit 
just for your reference, is habitus ile aut iluc atque rosas retrorsum, um, which I imagine is the hobbit or there and back, back again, again, which tends to be Retro, the title you know. that people use. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple other translations into languages that I didn't expect, uh, Esperanto and Hawaiian. Both. Yeah, I was like, I didn't even know that there were things, and this is my total, and you can hate me, y'all, I'm sorry already in advance, but like, I didn't know that there were books written in Hawaiian. Yeah. Straight up, straight up didn't know that, and then I saw this was a translation, and I was like, what? Okay, cool, who, cool. I've seen some really interesting translations of the Bible into, um, like, pidgin languages, which is really oh, interesting. But that would make sense because it's like missionary, they're trying to spread it. Yeah, but it's, it's also... Yeah. Useful. I don't know. I, I feel like it's part of the movement to maintain uh, and preserve a bunch of native languages. Like the fact that Irish is a protected language mm -hmm. and um, there's a lot of work on maintaining uh, and continuing Native American languages and things like that. And Hawaiian falls under that as well, I'd imagine. I wonder if they are in the process of translating The Hobbit into a Native American language, such as Lakota. That would be super cool. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a little, it? I don't know. It, it's interesting to me. And God, we're so white and we want to talk about these things. And I'm like, Ugh. but I'm like that there was not a written language for that until there, until white people demanded that there was, you know, yep. like the Navajo code breakers in uh, world war two, because they mm -hmm. used Navajo as code. Mm -hmm. Um, fun fact about that, um, at least from what my research, because uh, my friend and I saw this thing, this like gravestone, we were like, we don't know what language this is. And we Googled it and we could not find anything except for one of the words. And it said it was in Navajo. And we have a hunch that maybe Navajo is still um, like a secret because it was used as a code language in World War II. Like mm -hmm. I, we didn't find anything published about the, like, about the language. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just wondering how, how much literature is out there that is being translated into a Native American language because it's mostly oral history based. And I know of some translations, um, mostly I've seen it around uh, one of my favorite playwrights, Thompson Highway, writes his plays and operettas in Cree first and then translates them into English Oh, um, because his first language is Cree. Uh, he's Canadian. He's not from the United States. But... I, I'm not super familiar with like novels or epics that were English and have been translated into another language. And I'm wondering if it's an issue of interest and trying to maintain interest in scholarship in a language that is heavily based in a culture. Mm -hmm. um, and if they, there's less of a point of modernizing the text to get people psyched to learn Cree. It's more about like people speak this language and write their own works in it. And you get to learn it that way. To try and preserve it as a living language, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I know a lot of examples of songs that are in uh, Native American languages and bands that create music in that language that are still modernized. Uh, I saw a tribe called Red in concert and they had a talk about how there was some song that they sang that is in a, uh, a native language. I can't remember which one, unfortunately, um, but it's all about Facebook. 
Interesting. Yeah. And so it's, it's very much a living language. It's not trying to preserve a dead language the way that Latin and ancient Greek are. But I think just about how, it, like the fact that the Hobbit was translated into Irish, which is still a living and evolving language as well. I wonder if it will move into these sorts of languages and Hawaiian now too. So I guess it just depends on the interest and the market, probably. I'm going to try to look into some more about just translation as a legal thing and a marketing thing, um, just to see kind of what the metrics are for when you decide to translate something into another language. If you're like, is this worth it? Will enough people buy this? What kind of rights do you get when you decide to translate it into another language? If there are laws around translation, like if you have to, if there's laws around what you have to stick to or if it's completely free form. Yeah, I'd imagine considering how litigious and strict J.R. Tolkien's estate is, there are probably some pretty solid rules around translation of his works, which we will get into with the Lord of the Rings talk because there was some drama there. But drama, (laughs) some bad experiences with translations. Yeah, so that is our our chat on the translation of The Hobbit into various uh, human languages from, you know, Westron to English and then to over 69 other languages. I'm kind of surprised there's not an Elvish version yet. Like, I'm surprised a fandom has not been like, hey, we're going to translate this into Elvish because guess what? Tolkien originally wanted to write the entire thing in Elvish. So why don't we go ahead and do it for him? But I, nope, I didn't see that on there anywhere. That's surprising. A lot of the translations preserved just some of the Tangwar, as far as I could tell. Mm-hmm. The, the written. That would be a major undertaking to decide to <laughs> translate it all back into the language Tolkien originally wanted to write it all in. I think there'd be like a poetic justice about it. I am almost seeing that there would be a bit of fear there because the man himself wanted to do that originally and he no one knew his language better than him. Oh, and I highly doubt the Tolkien estate is going to let anyone do that for that exact reason. Publish it. You certainly could do it on your own time and spend, you know, years of your life. That's true. <laughs> but that seems... You can't publish uh, it, yeah. That seems thankless. <laughs> I mean, one could argue that Tolkien all did all of this without expecting any thanks to come from it, but he did it because he loved it. I think at a certain point he expected something from this. After he translated The Hobbit, oh, he expected something from this. Why else would he but, write a but trilogy? Like, but like all of the backstory, all of the all of the the copious notes, the Silmarillion, the Children of Hurin, the like everything else, the fifteen languages he created, some of which he doesn't even talk about or use, but they're still there. He still made 15 plus languages that were usable and had grammar to a certain extent and has some of them had different, you know, scripts for them. Like at a certain point, that kind of thing isn't, isn't, he's not doing that for fame or for the money of it. He's doing it because he loves it. Mm -hmm. That's true. That kind of backstory and what was published and what wasn't, he definitely did it for the love of language. And it's impressive how many other people loved his language enough to translate it into others. (laughs) And a a lot of it was published posthumously by Christopher Tolkien. Yeah, just because he knew that everyone was so freaking hype for Tolkien. Yes. So horny for more Middle Earth content. Every day. Well, hopefully all of you got your Tolkien fix from this episode. <laughs> like, that's how we're ending this. Oh, You're we're welcome. ending this. this way. 
<laughs> uh, thank you so much for listening to Finding the Glitter and the Gold. We will be back next week with an episode about the translations of Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, into various languages and all of the conflicts that arose from that. But yeah, if you'd like to drop us a line, talk with us about translations, anything like that, our email is glitterinthegold at gmail.com. We're available through any major podcasting app. And if you like what you heard, we'd love it if you would subscribe, write us a review, rate us, share us with your friends, all of that. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Yeah, yeah. Get everyone high on our supply here with the Tolkien content. See y'all on the Shire side. Oh my god, the audio is so bad for that. See y'all on the Shire side. Thank you. <laughs>